0: Let's do it. He is, risen. he is risen. Indeed. Yeah, he is. And it's Easter Sunday. Yep, you can clap at that. Our, uh, our other campuses and venues are joining us for our time live in the, uh, in the Word of God. And so um, I, I'm really, it's hard not to get fired up as a follower of Christ on Easter Sunday, it really is. I mean, we're, if you're not fired up yet, we're going to do our best over the next half hour <laughs> to help you do that. Uh, I, I even wore my, my hipster glasses today for you guys. I, I remember when I bought these a few months ago, I, I think I told you guys I was uh, trying to you know, look like Rustin, who's one of our young hip pastors, and Neil popped my buzz, bubble and said, you look like Drew Carey. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, And then he said, "Oh oh, but I forgot Drew Carey lost his weight. And so uh, yeah So if you know of a good church for Neil, uh, that would be good. No, I'm teasing. I, uh, I've been working hard thinking about how we can talk about Easter and what it is that we need to hear about Easter. And I think that God has given me uh, something very pointed and hopefully very meaningful. So let's bow and pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for uh, church. We're grateful for that today, for the country we live in that we can meet freely with all that's going on around the world now, meet freely and uh, worship you and talk intelligently about what your Bible says about something that happened in history that affects us today. God, I pray for all of us here, as well as at Cactus and Mountain Valley, at the chapel and at the venue, that, God, you would uh, speak to our hearts individually and then collectively as a church as we, with laser beam precision, look to you and the resurrection of your Son, Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it hit me this week that sometimes it's just good to be able to talk honestly, candidly, and directly uh, without having to hold anything back or be leery of what others might think. Have you found that yet in life? Uh, Sometimes it's just good to be totally up front, no beating around the bush when it comes to the things of life. Uh, About a quarter of a century ago, Kim and I were living in Barrington, Illinois. I had just gotten out of uh, seminary. I was doing a one-year internship at a large church in the Chicago area, and we didn't have two nickels to rub together. The internship was paying, I can still remember this, about a thousand dollars a month so after taxes, it was just about 800 and change a month, and Kim was a substitute school teacher. And so the church had put in their bulletin an ad saying that if anybody wanted to take an intern in for one year, uh, that would be nice at a reduced rate maybe to live in their house. And so there's this wonderful family in South Barrington that had been blessed with a great big house not big like by DC Ranch standards, but still a big house. And and they had a four-car garage, and they had built a beautiful efficiency apartment above this four-car garage. And, and they were gonna rent it to Kim and I for less than a car payment, it was a, really a gift. And they were a wonderful family to live with for a year. Uh, the guy in this family was a real man's man, you can picture that, he was big and burly, he liked to work with his hands, and had, had done a lot of the work around their house, But like sometimes big, burly guys, he was very sensitive in his spirit. Just a real sensitive guy. And we learned that about Hugh. That was his name, that he looked tough on the outside. But inside, he was very tender and sensitive. That's important for this story. Because toward the end of our year there, they invited us one night, as we were just getting ready to head to Detroit for our first pastorate, they invited us up to their home in Green Bay, Wisconsin, right on on the bay. And they actually said that they had a a lot that they'd had for years with a trailer on it in Green Bay. And then two lots away, they just purchased their dream house on Green Bay. So they had both. And they said, we're working on the dream house still, so there's not going to be room for the family and you guys. But, you know, we stayed in the trailer for years, and it's beautiful, and it's on Green Bay, and you'll love it. So Kim and I decided to go up there for one night that's kind of a last hurrah with this family I'll never forget getting up there and we were sitting there on Green Bay looking over the beautiful bay and it was gorgeous and everything they said and then you can just picture a small dumpy trailer there and some of you who know me know I'm rather organized my wife says I'm anal retentive but that's another argument and 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 I brought a can of raid one of those things that you know can blow bomb the whole place and, and right before dinner, when Hugh wasn't looking, I went into this trailer and I just bombed it. I figured, you know, let's make sure that we're not going to get like, you know, salmonella or something from sleeping in here, or a staph infection, or I could go on and on. And, and, and I bombed it. And then we went to dinner. When we came back, I kid you not, true story, Kim and I walked into this trailer and it was like a horror movie. What the raid had done is all the spiders and all the bugs had come out of their hiding. And they were just strings from down from the ceiling and they were still semi-alive. And it was, it was just, and my wife looked at me and she said, I am not sleeping in that place. And I said, well, Kim, Hugh's gonna be hurt. I mean, I promise you, he will be hurt if we say this trailer is not up to par. And I'm not telling them, I bombed it. I said, so, you know, I said, <laughs> we, we have to sleep here. And we had this little argument, and we're newly married. And she said, no, you're not staying in that place. And and so I noticed when I came into town that there was an hotel. The M was burned out. Uh, It was an hotel. (laughs) And so I said, okay, let's go spend the night. Hugh's gone. We'll go spend the night in the hotel. I got a plan. So we went to the hotel, and we knocked on the door. And and the guy came out. And you got to love Wisconsin. I said, "Uh, how much is a room? He said, 20 bucks. Now that was got to be better than that trailer, so we got into the room, and, and I'm t- not kidding the sheets didn't match. The air conditioner was loud. it was a hot summer night, uh, but it was the best night's sleep we would have had given that trailer. In fact, Kim says it was like the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. I mean, it was <laughs> very nice compared to that trailer. Here's where the story gets rich. The next morning, I knew that Hugh would be hurt if he found out we did all that. So I woke Kim up at 5.30, and we drove back out to the lot. And we set up a couple of lawn chairs, and we sat in the lawn chairs, and not 10 minutes later, Hugh comes running through the woods with two cups of coffee. Now, now, now my daughter, Abby, has told me that pastors are really good at telling the truth with the intent to deceive, and I think she's probably <laughs> right. We are a sneaky bunch, and so Hugh comes running through the woods, and very carefully, I noticed he said to me, how was it? But he didn't define it. So I simply looked at him and I said, it was great. And he accepted that. And he was never the wiser, none the wiser that we didn't spend the night in his trailer. And we got on with our day and it was a great day spent with our dear friends. I got to tell you, over the years I have felt a little guilty, as some of you would too, about not being totally up front with my friend. Though I did it because I knew he was so sensitive, and I risked hurting him uh, with the truth. And and let's face it, sometimes life is that way. It's sad, but we wrestle. I know you guys do too. You wrestle with being totally up front versus holding back for the sake of what others might think or even hurting them and creating some dissonance in the relationship. And the reason that that's important is that this Easter weekend, there will be hundreds of millions of people in hundreds of thousands of churches Uh, coming to church uh, this Easter weekend here in our country. And I got to tell you, there's an inherent pressure put on pastors and worship leaders to be creative, catchy, witty, even gimmicky when it comes to preaching the Easter messages for no no other reason than we know that some of you aren't going to be back until Christmas. (laughs) Uh, We call you CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only Christians. And I get it. I'm not judging it. I grew up like that. First 17 years of my life, I went to church only on Christmas and Easter. I didn't even know they had services in between then. And so every Easter, I'd say, well, I'll see you next Christmas. And because of that, there's a real pressure upon us as pastors to get it right and to make sure that we put on our, our, our best show, if you will. And here's the problem is that there's some of us that want to impress you rather than offend you There's some of us that want to be winsome at the expense of being clear we want to entertain and then maybe get to a little bit of truth and over the years i i gotta confess i've fallen prey to this i agonize every easter and how can i make the the, the easter message somehow winsome and creative and witty and even gimmicky and, and and now that i'm 52 years old i gotta tell you i'm tired of that guys i really am I'm tired, watch this, I'm tired of sitting in a lawn chair and pretending I didn't sleep in the trailer. I'm tired of trying to pull one over on you guys and sort of slip the gospel in. I'm tired of making light, quite frankly, of what C.S. Lewis called the greatest miracle to ever hit this planet, which is the resurrection of Jesus. I'm just tired of that. And so honestly, I sat in my home office this week, and I reread the gospel accounts with a, with a fresh light, and, and here's the thought that hit me. I know no other clearer, more straightforward, more honest way to say it, and if this makes some of you uncomfortable or even offends you, I, 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 I don't know if I'm going to apologize, but this is what Easter is all about, gang. Let's just rally around it, and that is, give me a click here. <laughs> Maybe it's not working. There it is. Jesus rose from the dead, and this changes everything. That's Easter. And the fact that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, we'll get to that in a minute here, but that changed everything for all the main players in that original Easter story, and I'm gonna suggest that it changes everything if you will let it for you and me today. You see, as I read the gospel accounts this week, particularly in the Gospel of John, which our church has been studying for the last year, and that we're gonna continue after Easter here, Uh, It hit me that when you read John without knowing anything about the Bible, without knowing anything about theology or anything like that, just read the crucifixion and the resurrection accounts, two things will hit you. The first thing that will hit you is that Jesus Christ was crucified on a Friday night and that he was dead and buried. We call it three days, but it was about 36 hours, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then on Sunday morning, they went to the tomb, they found it empty, and then they saw that he was resurrected from the grave. A guy that was stone cold dead came back to life. That's the first thing that you will notice in reading the resurrection accounts with no bias at all. And let's be really clear, we're not talking about a myth like Homer's Odyssey or something like that, which would have been written a few hundred years before Christ. We're not even talking about a metaphor. The gospel writers didn't mean, well, kind of like a butterfly gets new life, you know, that Jesus got new life and we can get new life. No, they mean literally and fully a guy who was dead came back to life. That's the first thing that you notice that's inarguable in the gospel accounts. And then the second thing you notice, however, and this is what really blew me away this year, is that the resurrection of Jesus literally changed everything for these initial followers. It changed everything. I'll show you more detail here in a second. But wait, they went from confusion to joy, from despair to clarity, from denial and unbelief to a completely restored faith. So if there was ever anything in the Bible that was a game changer, it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what John and then Matthew, Mark, and Luke want us to know. And so let me show you what I mean. Again, not being gimmicky at all, because this comes right out of the text. uh, When you read John, there's a dividing line between the crucifixion and the resurrection. So we're going to call it B-R and A-R. BR obviously stands for before resurrection and AR stands for after resurrection. It's a literary device that John uses in chapters 19, 20, and 21 of his gospel to help us see that there is a huge demarcation line between the way people felt before Jesus was resurrected and what happened after he was resurrected. Let me show you. Uh, Before he was resurrected, there was at least three things going on in their hearts and minds that John wants us to know. The first thing was confusion. There's a tremendous amount of confusion in their lives. Jesus had come upon the scene. He had declared himself the long-awaited Messiah, the one who was going to restore Israel and bring Gentiles into the fold. He claimed to be one who came from God as the second person of the Trinity. They knew all of that, and yet he was arrested, and then tried, and then crucified. So look at their confusion. Look at Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, many of you have heard of her. She was one of the followers of Jesus, very close follower of Jesus in the first century. And she goes to the grave to put some more burial spices upon Jesus. They didn't embalm people back then. They didn't know how, so they put a lot of spices, as you'll see in a minute, on a dead body so that when it would decay, it would not smell. So she goes there to to do that, and she finds the grave empty. And look at what it says in verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, which is John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, now watch this, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I don't think it takes a a rocket scientist to, to know she's not talking about a resurrection here. Give me a head nod, you guys understand that, right? I mean, she thinks somebody has stolen the body of Jesus, She thinks that that somebody has taken that body and moved it somewhere else. Even though Jesus told her that he was going to be resurrected, he said, kill me, put me in the grave for three days, and I will rise from the dead, she was still very confused on whether that would actually happen and if that actually did happen. So then uh, Simon Simon, Peter, and John run to the grave. And they indeed find it empty too. And this is what it says was their take on it. It says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And so again, no matter how you slice it, when they first started to see that Jesus' body was gone, there was a lot of confusion as to what that means, if it was even true, and what was really going on. I'm going to suggest to you in a minute that we have a lot of people confused today when it comes to spiritual things. So we're not judging this. We can relate to this. And that the before resurrection mentality is fraught with confusion. Now hang on to that. And notice with me, because it gets thicker, a second thing that was going on in the before resurrection mindset of Jesus' closest followers, and that is despair. Uh, Look at what it says in John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. It says, After these things... And these things means the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, the governor of Judea, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Now Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And some of you are saying right now, well, okay, so they buried Jesus. I mean, that makes sense. He died. Yeah, but notice the despair in that. As I said earlier, uh, these are people who had pinned their best hopes on Jesus. They'd seen a lot of religious leaders come and go, but he was different. He claimed to be God. Buddha never claimed to be God. Muhammad never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be God. All the major heads of the major world religions never claimed to actually be God. Jesus did, and he was different. And then he claimed to deal with our sin problem, and he claimed to bring re- redemption and deliverance to our lives, and he claimed to be one who was eternal and lived forever, and now he's dead. And to show their despair, you've got to see this, guys, they're treating him like a dead person. <laughs> They're putting 75 pounds of spices on him. Why? Because they expect his body to decay. I don't mean to be gross, but they expect it to start smelling anytime soon because they didn't think he was going to come back to life. And you got to feel the despair in that. Though the text doesn't say it, you got to believe they're going, well, gosh, we pinned our hopes on him, and now he's gone, and he's dead. And you got to believe that Joseph, who was a sophisticated man, and Nicodemus, who was an educated man, were thinking to themselves, we are never trusting a guy like this again. We've seen many come and go. He was our best hope, and he's gone. And my spiritual life is done. It's despair time for the disciples. You'll see even for some of the core disciples, especially for these guys. So you got confusion, you got despair, and then this one's rich. You got even his closest followers. The ones who knew better, the ones who Jesus told, "Here's what's going to happen," entering into denial and unbelief. Who's the most famous one here? Anybody know? Peter. <laughs> Peter. One of my favorite disciples. Jesus even told Peter, you ever had somebody tell you that you're going to do something and you say no and then you end up doing it? That that really stinks when that happens. Imagine Jesus saying that to you. Jesus told Peter, you will deny me before all this is over. And Peter said, what are you smoking? That's in the margins. There is no way. (laughs) There is no way that I am going to deny you. Not a chance. In fact, when Jesus was arrested, Peter took his sword, remember this, and he cut off the soldier's ear. I mean, he was that rabid and fired up about being a follower of Jesus. Now watch what happens. Look at John 18. While Jesus is being tried and eventually crucified, it says the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself by the fire, and they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. So there you have it, a spiritual casualty in one of Jesus' closest followers, a guy who caved into denial, caved into unbelief. Some of us can relate. We think that when we come to Christ, all the battle is over. Not true. Even sometimes for Jesus' closest followers, it's easy to fall into confusion and despair and even unbelief at times. We see it in these before resurrection accounts. Uh, But then notice That after the resurrection, and again, I'm not trying to read into this, guys. It's just there in the story. After the resurrection, everything changes. And in almost a one-to-one correlation, we see this confusion, despair, and unbelief change, morph, into something incredibly positive. So let me show you what I mean. Confusion would be turned into peace and joy. And I mean a one-to-one correlation. Those who were confused within that same day will be filled with peace and joy. Why? Because of the resurrection. So so look at how John goes on in chapter 20. I read you earlier the verses 2 and then 9 and 10 out of chapter 20. That occurred Sunday morning. So Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon, dead by Friday night, risen by Sunday morning. Now, look at this, it's Sunday night. And it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Sunday for the Jews, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, so they're hiding out in some huddle, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, Greek word for joy, when they saw the Lord, And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So simply see, guys, their confusion was now dissipated and joy and peace took its place. Why? Because they now understood. And as I'm going to suggest to you in a minute, they understood that if Jesus actually did rise from the dead and they saw that he did, it changes everything. Because everything he said was going to come true is now going to come true. Everything he did to show who he was is now true. And as a result of that, there is no more haziness. There is no more confusion in their lives. They get it. They get why he came, that he had to die for our sins, that, they, that he needed to bring us to God. And because he rose from the dead, he has the power to do so. Their confusion turned to peace and joy. And then watch this. The despair that were in so many at that time turned to clarity and faith turn to clarity and faith. I said to you earlier that it was not just Joseph and Nicodemus who had um, despair. There was a a lot of them who were despairing. And and even some of Jesus's closest 12 disciples were in massive despair. Uh, My favorite is Thomas. You guys remember him doubting Thomas? Uh, Thomas didn't just doubt. This dude was like in absolute depression and despair. We know that to be true because on Sunday night, Jesus revealed himself to the 11 disciples. Thomas was absent, so they immediately went out and told Thomas, he's risen. And do you remember what Thomas's response was? Again, what are you smoking? He's not risen. He's not risen. You got to believe Thomas Lewis said, you're imagining it. You want it to happen so bad that you think you saw Jesus because like we know we sometimes see people, but it's not really that person. You think you saw Jesus. Because you're in massive grief mode. But it wasn't him. And watch this. For a week, that argument went on and on. For a week, they said, to him, no, he really is alive. And Thomas said, no, he's not. He's dead. It's over, guys. And then look at what happens. Eight days later, John says, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas, this time, was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, which by the way, foreshadowed you and me. And so Thomas, as despairing as Joseph and Nicodemus, saw and touched and he believed, but make no mistake, it was all because of a resurrection. It was all because Jesus had now risen and his despair turned to clarity and faith. And then a final thing happened after this resurrection and that was a massive restoration took place Do you remember the guy that caved into unbelief and denial, Peter? Which some of you have done over the years, and even in ways I have done. Look at how Jesus responded after his resurrection to Peter. Backdrop of this account here real quick is that Peter really gave up on his faith. And we know that because he went back to fishing. He was a fisherman. And so after the resurrection, even though Jesus was resurrected and showed them his hands and all that, Peter said, well, obviously I disqualified myself. Some of you have felt that way. So I just qualified myself because of what I did. And, uh, and, and so he went back to fishing. And at one point he's fishing on the lake and he sees Jesus on the shore. And Peter's so impetuous, he jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore. And you can just picture him there just like awkwardly looking at Jesus. And Jesus invites him to have breakfast. And look what happens at that point. It says when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? more than these, meaning all the others? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you? And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you? And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Let me ask you, it's not a trick question, why do you think Jesus burdened Peter with that question three times in a row? It's simple, because he denied him three times. And it was Jesus' loving and wonderful way to say, you turned your back on me three times and so three times I'm going to restore you. Three times I'm going to help you affirm your love for me. And then as you affirm it, I'm going to say to you, now let's get on with our work. You're back in the fold. You're back in with me. Now let's tend to my sheep. And for the rest of his life, Peter would do that. And Peter would become a pillar in the church and one of the great leaders of the Christian church. But why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he then meets Peter and says, you're my son. You are mine. I have saved you. Now let's restore you. Guys, are you starting to see from confusion to peace and joy, from despair to clarity and faith, from denial and unbelief to restoration? This is why I say, no gimmicks involved. This is the plain reading of the resurrection account. There's only two things you ever need to know to get the resurrection. He rose, (laughs) and it changed everything. And there's 2.2 billion people probably coming to church this Easter weekend around the world, and this is the common denominator among all Christian traditions. We all agree on this aspect of it, that Jesus rose, and it changes everything. And here's my final thought, and that is that it doesn't just change people, who lived in the first century and who were fishermen or the religious elite like Nicodemus. No, it's supposed to change you and me. You see, the same resurrection that Jesus did 2,000 years ago is supposed to be believed by you and me today. We're supposed to lean our weight in upon Jesus each moment of each day. And here's what God promises, that as we do that, as we take him up on his word, we too can deal with our confusion, our despair, our denial, our unbelief, and that God will give us instead peace, joy, clarity, faith, and restoration. I love how Schrader said in the video that we showed you earlier, I don't know if you caught it, but Tom said the resurrection is not just a once a year observance, it's something we should be living out each moment of each day, Right? And I'm telling you here today that honestly, for your life, if you wanted to, if you will place your faith in Jesus and his resurrection, you too can deal with your confusion, your despair, and your unbelief. You know, for 17 years, I lived in that state. I, I can still remember. I grew up in a great town, a wonderful home. I had two parents who stayed together. Dad's still with mom. He's 82 and she's 80, and they're more in love than they've ever been. I didn't have any major traumas growing up. I mean, I was blessed quintessential middle-class home in the Midwest. But I remember by the time I was about 16 or 17, wondering to myself, is this it? Is this really what life is about? A a psychologist would say I was experiencing an existential angst. Augustine would say I was recognizing the God-shaped vacuum inside of my soul that could only be filled by God himself. But I gotta tell you, I was confused. I I I had a lot of questions. And I was somewhat in despair, I mean, not like kill myself despair, but, you know, kind of like, well, does any of it really matter? And I can remember also just living in the realm of unbelief. Again, I went to church every Christmas and Easter, but let's be frank, that doesn't really do it for you, does it? That's why we invite some of you, if not all of you, back each week, because honestly, I mean, you can get away with only doing maintenance on your air conditioner twice a year, but it doesn't work like that with your soul. Your soul needs a lot more. It's a lot more precious. And I found that being a CEO Christian didn't really deliver when it came to my confusion and my despair and even my unbelief. And and so I started a search. And again, my story isn't different than thousands of people here at Scottsdale Bible Church. It was in that search that I thought I found God, but in hindsight, I realized he found me. And I discovered who Jesus really was and is, that he was God come in the flesh. I discovered that I, I do have sin in my life. I mean, I didn't deny that. I just didn't realize how much it needed to be forgiven by God. And, and I discovered the nature of eternal life and how to get there through receiving Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And then I discovered over the last 35 years on how to become a better follower and a disciple, which we talk about all the time here make no mistake, when I accepted Christ and I realized that he really, really, really did rise from the dead, my confusion turned into peace and joy. My despair was now turned to clarity and faith. And my unbelief was restored to its rightful place. And that was to take the un away from it and just believe. You see, if the resurrection of Jesus happened, three things are now true for you and me. Uh, Let's see these first, is that if the resurrection happened, Jesus is real and his words are true. Do we all understand that? Again, you might doubt the resurrection here today, but if it happened, if it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, then there's no argument that he is who he said he was And that is God come to this planet and that what he taught us about the nature of spiritual reality is true. That's the first thing we need to recognize. The second thing we need to see is that if the resurrection is true, then Jesus' presence is still with us. Because you only got three things going on in the Gospels. A crucifixion, a resurrection, and an ascension. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, do you remember his very last words? He said, I will always be with you. I will never forsake you. His presence is still with us, but that presence hinges upon a resurrection. Because if he wasn't raised, then hey, it's all just a hoax. And then thirdly, if Jesus is resurrected, then his power is still available to us today. Paul the Apostle in Philippians 3 would call it a resurrection power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is now available to his followers to find meaning and purpose in life through a relationship with almighty God. You see, this is what I hope for for you. It's really my only prayer for your life. Some of you asked me to pray for blessings, you know. Hey, pray for my business, you know, pray for my money, pray for my kids, pray for my marriage. I care about all those things, but at the end of the day, I can't promise you a blessing on any of those levels. What I can hope for you, because I think God wants this. In fact, I know God wants this for every human being, is that they might find him. And in finding him, they might find their center. And it all hinges on this idea of a resurrection. Let me close with this. John said it this way. In the close of his gospel, he tells us why he wrote everything he wrote. He says, these things I have written to you so that you may, say it with me, believe. believe. Say it again, Believe. believe. But what do you believe? That Jesus is the Christ, your savior and your deliverer, the only one who can forgive you of your sin, that he is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity come to this planet for you and that by believing you may have life in his name. And by the way, life means both eternal life in heaven as well as life here and now by believing. That's the call. But we're gonna wrap up here in a minute by singing a song and then the venues and campuses will do so as well. And Troy here and then the campus pastors at other places are are, are gonna show you the pathway that we've designed for any of you that want to know more and want to follow up by talking about how you can believe. It's not as complicated as many of you think. In fact, some of you are ready to believe right now, and I'm gonna pray with you to do so here in a second. But if you have more questions, if you wanna talk, again, Troy and then our other pastors are gonna to talk to you about what pathways we can offer you to help you do that, because we would love to talk to you further. We're not a pushy church, but as you can tell, we're excited <laughs> about who Jesus is. We're excited about his word, and that's why we meet every week. And we'd love to have you join us before next Christmas. So would you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we can set aside in our lives to worship you and to focus on what has become a a wonderful, wonderful, if you will, holiday in our country, Easter. And God, hopefully today we've seen that it's much more profound and meaningful than than, than simply a religious holiday. It's a pivotal point of history. When Jesus came to this planet, died for our sins, and then showed it through a resurrection. And God, it changes everything. And so, Father, I pray that as those of us who have already believed are encouraged by these words today and go out of here, hopefully fired up for the weeks and days and months ahead, that, God, you would continue to encourage us, that when we feel despair, when we feel confusion, when we feel even unbelief coming on, we would go back to our first love, as the Bible says, and cling to this resurrection of our Savior. And God, I pray for some here today that are ready to believe. God, right where they sit, they know what this means, the light has gone on in their head. They, they're ready to trust in you and your resurrection for their very spiritual and relational lives. And so, Lord, right where they sit, they say, I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one sent for me. He is the one who atoned for my death. He is the one who rose from the dead. He is the one who ascended into heaven, yet is still always with us through the presence of his spirit, I believe. And God, as they believe today, would you affirm them that today is the day they can mark as their spiritual birthday, the day they came home to you. God, as we sing one last song here, may you be pleased. May you receive this song as it's intended to be a moment of worship as we close our service on a glorious note. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name, and we all say together, amen. Amen.